from Seattle, Washington. I'm Zach Jabal, and this is Next Round, the VinePair podcast conversation. We're bringing you these conversations between our regular podcast episodes in order to examine how we move forward as a drinks business following the COVID-19 crisis. And uh, today I'm talking with Christy Norman. She's the co-founder and president of the United Sommeliers Foundation. Christy, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Zach. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so let's start. I'm just I'm curious because because when we're going to talk a lot about um, where things are going in the wine industry and with sommeliers in particular, but but I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how you started out working in in the wine industry and as a sommelier. What was the what was the early part of your career like? Yeah, well, honestly, I worked at a steakhouse when I was 19 years old, and I wanted to be promoted to be a server, and so I learned about wine just so I could get a promotion and, you know, work and make more money. And I really fell in love with it. I had one certified Psalm that was working at the restaurant with me. And he said, I will help you and, and teach you what you need to know so that you can, can pass these exams. And it really started off with me just wanting to take level one. And I passed level one a couple of days after my 21st birthday. And then I ended up taking certified about six months later. So I was still 21 um, and I passed in Vegas. And then I went and worked at Spago Beverly Hills because um, they had one of the biggest wine lists that I had ever seen. One of the masters who taught my intro exam uh, was Chris Miller. And he was the wine director at Spago Beverly Hills for quite some time. And I was like, wow, there's this big wine list and it's 45 minutes from where I live. And so I applied at Spago um, a you know, bunch of times <laughs> until they hired me, basically. Um, and they gave me a shot. So I've been there ever since. So it's been about five years. And then uh, when we talk about the sort of the origins of the United Sommeliers Foundation, how, how did that come to be? And, and sort of what was the what was the impetus behind it? Well, honestly, I, I've been running tasting group at Spago for the last three years. So I would host monthly master classes and then biweekly blind tasting for songs that were, you know, low cost. It was usually 40 bucks for a flight and um, like pretty much free masterclasses, free or $20 donation or something towards the photographer or gift or something like that for the presenter. Um, but Chris Blanchard and I had a class that we were going to do on March 16th, and it was going to be a really cool Vine Hill Ranch class. And of course, that week, as the pandemic was progressing, it got increasingly um, more confusing on what we were supposed to do, you know, and I ended up canceling the class at 2 a.m. because um, restaurants in L.A. shut down on the 15th on Sunday night. And so um, I shut down the class and Chris and I were chatting and he just said, hey, you know, how can we help the bombs? Because essentially I was running this group for a long time and everybody would come to me when they needed a job. And it just left and right. It was like, okay, they're eliminating this position. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to get to go back or my restaurant's closing or whatever. And so Chris and I just started as a GoFundMe and I pretty much called you know, my friends in the industry that were very well known. Um, I think it was really important to have people like Jeff Lubitzka, for instance, he's an MW with Kistler and Sonoma, um, to have people like Eric Siegelbaum in DC, um, John McDaniel in Chicago, like people that I knew had um, a history in the industry to help legitimize what we were doing. And we ended up uh, starting the process to become a charitable entity because we wanted to be able to offer, you know, tax deductible donations. And that was really when, uh, and, you know, we still are, have yet to be approved by the IRS, but it's in process and all the donations will be um, uh, tax deductible back to our date of incorporation in March when that happens. So it's been a, a long process. 
<laughs> yeah, I bet. And and is it is is the idea sort of to provide direct financial assistance, or or, or what exactly does the foundation do? Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Um, essentially, we wanted to support SOMs um, in financial crisis due to circumstances beyond their control. That's our mission. And so right now it was COVID-19, but when the fires happened, um, we have a pretty broad definition of sommelier. I've always been a person that believes that a SOM doesn't necessarily have to be on a restaurant floor. You know, if somebody has an advanced certification as a SOM, but then they move to a distributor, I still consider that person a SOM. We don't have any certification requirements. And there's people that have been working as a SOM on a restaurant floor for many years without a certification, right? And so we wanted to provide some sort of financial relief for those people. So, um, you know, we started this fund and uh, we distribute in different voting rounds. All of the candidates are anonymized by a third party. Um, She's our only employee for the foundation. Uh, None of the board gets any pay. um, And we anonymize all the candidates so we can't see their name, their location, their restaurant, anything out of their essay that they submit is redacted so that we have no idea who they possibly could be. I, you know, we felt that it was super important. We don't want to, people to think that we're biased and you know, only awarding people from certain types of restaurants or something like that. It's purely based on need. And we have a couple different types of grants, but the first one is you know, a, a check that people can get directly to them. And then we launched a Grand Cru program and that's up to $2,500. Uh, paid directly to your creditors. So depending on, you know, essentially uh, people were allowed to resubmit, kind of give us an update because someone's situation in March might be wildly different in June, right? And so we wanted to provide a higher level of funding. It just really took us time to figure out how to do that legally, you know, what the steps were needed. You know, Chris Blanchard is still handwriting every single check. You know, we've given funds to over 800 bombs and um, and counting, you know, and Chris has mailed every single check himself. I think him and uh, him and one of, uh, I think he hired somebody to help him at one point, but it's pretty much all him. <laughs> gotcha. So I, I, I want to come back and talk a little bit more about the, the future of the sommelier um, because this is such a, you know, such a kind of precarious time, I think, for our profession in some sense. But but I do want to want to touch on one thing. You know, you wrote a really powerful essay for Vine Pair that published um, earlier this week from when we we're recording this and about um, the, let's say, the, you know, kind of widespread sexual abuse and harassment in the in the court of master sommeliers and specifically about how the the sort of mentorship program or the the sort of required the requirement that you get a mentor to be able to advance in the court is 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 so um was so insidious and and i don't want you to repeat the essay people uh, i'll link to it in the description and people should absolutely go read it if they haven't but can you can you talk a little bit about what why it is that that that's that having a mentor is so important and also what made it such a um, dangerous thing? Well, there there isn't any criteria on the Quartermaster Sommelier America's website of what will be on the exam. So when you're looking and and you're saying, okay, I want to be a certified SOM, you know, the, the, resources that, the resources that they have are Guild SOM and a few books. And so when you are somebody who's trying to create an outline or whatever, it is advantageous, obviously, to either know somebody who is passed directly or, you know, is a higher level that can help guide you, right? There, For instance, on the certified exam, they always do champagne service historically. I, I've never heard of anybody not getting champagne service as their 
serve as part of their exam where they have to go and open a bottle of champagne for a master while they, you know, quiz you on different things, right? As a 21-year-old, I happened to know a certified SOM who gave me that heads up. And so I was able to specifically train for that particular part. But if you were just in a city by yourself and you just wanted to be a certified SOM and you have no idea that that's going to happen, well, then you're going to fail. And there's no discount for retest, right? <laughs> so uh, it's, it's frustrating and it kind of requires you to lean on your relationship. So maybe you won't meet a master at first, but having a master at least in your network or kind of by separation of one degree becomes really advantageous because you have somebody that you can ask for support. Hey, what do you think about this? Is this the type of thing that they might ask me, right? And it's very problematic. It's really problematic. And also before, you know, you needed a, a master's recommendation to uh, take the advanced exam or higher, and you're invited to sit for the MS exam. So based on not knowing what the criteria for those things are, you never get a score um, on your, you know, um, uh, there's like a little quiz that you have to take before you're allowed to take the advanced exam because they want to, you know, filter out some candidates that aren't strong at theory. And you never get your score for that, right? So you have no idea how you rank, what decisions uh, were taken into account. And it might be a very transparent process, right? But because nobody knows what those are, you can only think like, oh, maybe this master's opinion of me will have some weight, right? Yeah, it definitely was my sense that that it always it seemed like it behooved candidates to ingratiate themselves to as many master sommeliers as possible, whether or not there was a direct and obvious correlation with then being a, you know able to sit for higher level exams. It was it was always very clear to me as someone who went through some of that process too that that was you know you had to do that and and that and that you never knew exactly how it would work out. You know, uh, obviously it wasn't as clear cut, but but. Um, but yeah, there was there was that element, and and I'm wondering too. You know, you mentioned that that it's that there was a sort of lack of there is a lack or has been a lack of transparency and a lack of um, kind of you know clear guidelines for uh, aspirants in terms of what is expected of them. But but I also you know is your sense that 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 lack of transparency is is necessary because I think I've heard from some people, especially as things have gotten more and more contentious, or I'd say more and more kind of clearly fucked up that, um, that there's some need to make, keep it, keep things obscure or, or keep things, uh, obfuscated from test takers. And, and I'm wondering if you feel that way, or if, if there's, if there to you, there's no reason for that kind of secrecy. Well, the MW exam publishes their questions every year, right? I'm not saying that there needs to be an exact guideline and a study guide for the MS exam. You're going to have to do a lot of outside study and reading outside of whatever they provide. However, they should provide what kind of scope of questions that they're going to have, right? Because the fact that you have no idea really makes you beholden to your network. And to be honest, every time someone comes back for an MS exam, they tell you all the questions right? There, people are already sharing all this information. So you don't need to be secretive about it because that is the only way for people to advance, you know, and, and, and have a good scope. So I don't, I think they should reveal the wines. I don't understand why you can't know what it is, you know, video proctoring. I mean, I had a long list of recommendations, but you know, it's, uh, it's, it's frustrating. And honestly, it's not even just having masters in your network. It's crazy because, being the person who has access to masters actually gives you status as well. It's so weird, you know, because some people have never met a master psalm before, 
And, you know, they think they're, you know, and, and master songs are incredible people. Like they've obviously dedicated their lives to something really important, but it's crazy that there's, it's become such an infatuation for some people and people, you know, the biggest feedback that I got, I don't know if you want me to share this, but I thought it was interesting. Please. Um, there's a lot of white male advance that told me that they didn't want to take out the word master. Like it would totally change the program or just, just a bunch of people. That was the only real piece of feedback that I got. And, you know, recently there was an amazing emotional video uh, by Tahira. Um, she, she was on the cover of 40 Under 40. She's an incredible person sipping socialite, um, Hughes Society. She's awesome. And she posted about her experience with, you know, CMS1 and how the word master has, you know, was, was triggering for her. And I think for a lot of people, they echoed the same sentiment. And I suggested that we should take the word master out of the program, you know, in consideration that it's been called a white supremacist group now i'm not saying that they are however having that association having the word master and my thing was kind of like if there's a group of people that we want to include into this program and that word has caused them harm however unintentional does it matter if we agree if it caused harm you know i mean there's so many other words why can't we call it the scholar program or something yeah. else you know what i mean <laughs> and but there's this fixation on having this hierarchy because it means something to these people that have been trying so hard to get it and I understand but also I hope that the leadership sees you know that is, is it worth it to cause harm right yeah. and 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 what's more important for the long-term health of the organization so that's a, a I think an excellent uh segue to, to one thing I wanted to ask you about as well which is you know we've we've obviously had some some changes already um, including the resignation of the, all of the board of the quartermaster sommeliers and you know sort of some conversation about what comes next I know you know answering the question well what should happen is is a big one and I don't expect a a, a full proposal but are there specific things that you think are are, are essential or, or, or critical um, that you know, either the, the change within the court of master sommeliers or that replace it in some fashion? Like, what are you most hopeful to see change? Well, when I was 19 and I was looking up what wine certification to go through, I was in a restaurant and the obvious choice was the court of master sommeliers. So I am not somebody that's like, oh, let's burn this down. Actually, I'm very the opposite. I believe that we should reform it, but it's going to take a lot. It's going to take a, a significant amount of change. And you know, I outlined a lot of the things that I thought, but ultimately they need, I mean, in June when, you know, all the stuff was happening, the Black Lives Matter movement, I actually acquired a copy of their bylaws because, and it's, it's you know, it's public information. Um, I acquired a copy of their bylaws because I wanted to see how their organization was run, what their mission statement was and all that. And keep in mind, this is a 40 year old organization, right? And so there's no judgment there. It's just that they have not been progressing as the times have been progressing. And their founding mission statement, it's not the one that's on their website, actually. It's their founding mission per their bylaws is to uh, promote the, the common interest of the membership. And then when you go down to page whatever and you look at what membership entails, uh, it's only master sommeliers that are considered members. And so when I understood that, I was, you know, because people were upset that they weren't posting about Black Lives Matter. They were upset that, you know, they didn't say anything with COVID-19. They were upset, you know, when all this stuff happened. And when you look at it through the lens of what their bylaws and their mission actually is to promote the common interest of master sommeliers, you're like, oh, well, it kind of makes sense why they reacted that way, right? And yeah. so my, my thing is just uh, that we should include 
people of all membership levels. So people that have been paying thousands of dollars to take their exam, whether or not that's, that means they've passed intro, now they're a member of the court, you know, or if they've passed certified, I don't know what that is. But I do think that there needs to be a conversation with membership outside. And I was very aggressive in trying to contact the board and giving my ideas to the, the diversity committee and stuff like that. And I was really blocked on so many levels. And I had several conversations with, with board members that just really didn't want to hear it. And it's totally fine. Like, I understand, like, people are busy, they're unpaid, but maybe the structure needs to change so that there's, um, you know, people who, who really care about what's going on and are willing to speak up and take time to hear out the community. Because I'm, you know, I'm a pretty... Uh, prominent person, at least in LA, and I definitely care about um, the sommelier community. I'm always coming from a place of how can we improve, and to not be able to 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 have my voice heard even was was frustrating, you know. And yeah. I think, yeah, and and I, you know, it's not like I just wrote that article overnight. I've been thinking about this. this is a fight I've been fighting for months and months. You know, I started tasting group bringing master sommeliers because I wanted to give them access to people who could write them recommendations at the time. Like this has always been my thing. So, <laughs> um, and I, I really feel that the board needs to include young people. I think it's a completely different mentality and speaking from somebody who's on a board now, I totally see how, you know, different generational perspectives kind of um, shape the organization. And so I'm not saying that a 21 year old needs to be on the board of directors, but I think that there needs to be some fresh perspectives. And right now there was just such high um, board requirements to even run for the board. So all of these people that were new master sommeliers, maybe they're not young, but they, you know, they're new, they're precluded from running for the board for several years, just because of the requirements that you must test um, at every examination level. Like you must, um, proctor every level of examination and to have to fly and do all that stuff not everybody can get to all that in a couple of years even you know and so because uh, you have to observe and there's all this stuff and um yeah there's just there's just really high requirements and i think that you know right now what the world wants this millennial generation that i'm a part of and also um gen z that's coming up faster than <laughs> we want them to i mean it's like they're coming you know and what we want is transparency. We want honesty, authenticity. We want to know what you care about so that we can make a determination of whether or not we support your organization, period. It's just, a, and it's just a different thing. It's totally generational. And I, it, there's no judgment. Like people, like my mom doesn't care if her, the people who make her ice cream care about social justice, but I love that Ben and Jerry's cares about social justice, you know? <laughs> yep. I'm curious, you know, you we, to come back a little bit to what we talked about earlier um, in the conversation, I'm wondering, you know, we are in this really kind of unprecedented time for this industry um, with the challenges that obviously that COVID-19 has presented and, um, and then, you know, sort of all this other, um, I guess, you know, uh, let's say this, all these obvious sort of problems that maybe had been under the surface in in wine, not just in the sommelier community. I mean, I think, unfortunately, a lot of this um, sexual harassment, sexual abuse and predation is, is sadly pretty common throughout the industry. But I'm wondering, you know, what do you, how do you think the, the sommelier profession is going to look coming out of COVID? Like, do you think that it's going to be the same or similar to what it was a year ago? Or do you think there are going to be some meaningful uh, differences? No, I mean, I'm hopeful that a fair certification process 
will emerge out of this, regardless of what happens, whether it's the court or something else. I think that if they don't change, a lot of the masters are going to defect anyway. And I would be happy to support a different organization and support building them up. I think that sommeliers um, aren't, you know, it's not the same job anymore. And I, I've always believed that sommeliers um, can exist on the internet. I think you can be an internet sommelier if you're, and hear me out, okay, before you, before I lose you completely. <laughs> I'm saying if you're curating selections for people online, I think you're still a sommelier. And that's just me personally. A lot of people have this attachment to like, you must be on a restaurant floor. But quite frankly, at this point, you know, it's, we're not going to have a lot of those anymore, or maybe it's just less, you know, I mean, we had four songs at Spago before the pandemic hit and we needed four songs. It was like, it just, we had to, but now when you're looking at it from an operator's perspective and everyone's trying to recoup all of these months of this disaster, you know, is a sommelier really necessary? And I think a lot of operators don't see them as, you know, profit centers of the restaurant, even though they are huge profit centers of the restaurant. You know, um, but I think that, you know, Psalms should look for other things that they love. I've always been a big proponent of like, you can do, you can Psalm and also, you know, start a business in wine and something that you love and still use all the tools that we have. Like we're not robots that are just okay on a restaurant. You know, there's lots of people that are creating new apps. They're doing AI technology. There's lots of opportunities for Psalms right now. I think you just got to look for them and be open to the possibility of, of shifting kind of the way that you do things. And it's, it's hard. It's really hard, especially if you didn't have something set up beforehand, but I think it's just about leaning into the parts of wine that you love and, you know, following that. Awesome. Well, Christy, thank you so much for your time and, and for your thoughts. I, I'm, you know, always uh interested to see what what it is that you think because i think you bring such an interesting and and really uh refreshing i suppose perspective to this industry and definitely look forward to chatting again in the future uh hopefully when uh restaurants are uh, back in full swing uh one of these days scott hopefully thanks so much for having me zach really appreciate it thanks so much for listening to the vine pair podcast If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced by myself and Zach Jabal. It is also mixed and edited by him. Yeah, Zach, we know you do a lot. I'd also like to thank the entire Vine Pair team, including my co-founder, Josh, and our associate editor, Kat Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.